Good. And I invite you to turn with me to Second Chronicles chapter 30, which is page 381 in your Bibles. As I had a, this is an unusual scheduling period and a, a t- just a week where I was preaching where I wasn't expecting to, I decided to go back to a passage I've preached on several times here just to give you a timestamp. The first time I preached on this passage, it, it talks about Assyria and Judah. I made the comparison, I looked because I went back to my manuscript, that Assyria and Judah were a little bit like Russia and Ukraine because I preached it in 2014 when Russia had annexed Crimea. So you can, you can see both the history and a little, I don't know, it was, it was a little odd how, how closely that paralleled. But I have, have, have preached from it several times, and I chose to do it for two reasons. First of all, because you see King Hezekiah here at his best. And the next couple sermons that I preach, which will be a couple weeks down the road, we'll be seeing him maybe at his worst, at a time that's, that's, spoiler alert, a little bittersweet at the end of his reign. But here you see him as an exceptional leader, taking brave actions, standing in the gap between God and his people. And I think it helps you get a full picture of his life when we come and see more of the mixed review of the end of his life. I think it's helpful. And second, this is about the fast, the Passover, and it's a fitting theme as we examine the Lord's Supper. The question has always been in the Old Testament, how can a holy God dwell with a sinful people? And the Passover shows us how. It was this amazing time when God's judgment passed over his people because of the blood that was on their doorposts. And this story of the Passover will show us how we can approach our great and holy God in a proper way, um, not only in the Lord's Supper, but really in all of worship. So what we will do is we will read this chapter in segments and we will start seeing a daring plan for the Passover, reading the first nine verses. Now, King Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. For the king and his princes and all the assembly in Jerusalem had taken counsel to keep the Passover in the second month, for they could not keep it at the time, that time, because the priests had not consecrated themselves in sufficient numbers, nor had the people assembled in Jerusalem. And the plan seemed right to the king and all the assembly. So they decreed to make a proclamation throughout all Israel, from Beersheba to Dan, that the people should come and keep the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel, Jerusalem. For they had not kept it as often as prescribed. So couriers went throughout all Israel and Judah with letters from the king and his princes, as the king had commanded, saying, O people of Israel, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may turn again to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not be like your fathers and your brothers, who were faithless to the Lord your God of their fathers, so that he made them a desolation, as you see. Do not now be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourself to the Lord and come to his sanctuary, which he has consecrated forever, and serve the Lord your God, that his fierce anger may turn away from you. For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return to him. In the previous chapter, this section of the Chronicles has four chapters on Hezekiah, which is significant. 
In the previous chapter, Hezekiah has been rushing to prepare the temple. And now you know why to celebrate the Passover. This was the big feast. It was to celebrate the Lord's salvation. If you remember from Exodus, it marked the beginning of their calendar year. Exodus was so significant in, in God bringing the people out of Israel and the Passover, Passover started that Exodus, that it is the reference point for everything else in their life. It is the defining new year. I also said this was daring. Why, why was this daring? Well, you need to know a little bit of the background. This is near the end of the time of the southern kingdom. You know, there was, there was the, the, the United Kingdom of Israel under, under Saul and David and Solomon, and then it split north and south. And the northern kingdom went down quicker in faithfulness, away from the Lord in apostasy. And at this time, as Josiah is taking the throne, the northern kingdom is effectively done. It is completely annexed and controlled by the Assyrians. And Hezekiah is following his wicked father Ahab, where Ahab has already, in his unbelief, capitulated to the Assyrians. If, if you would read earlier, it talks about how Ahab went to some of these other cities, looked at the Assyrian altars, made a copy of them, and brought them back and, and made, made copies of them in Jerusalem. Not only was this blasphemy and idolatry, but it was political loyalty. It was submitting to the gods of Assyria and acknowledging that they were stronger and their worship, their worship was better. After all, they were winning, so their gods must be the ones that are in charge. And so as Hezekiah comes to the throne, the northern kingdom's just fallen. He's taking these daring reforms. He's cleaning up the temple. He's starting the proper worship again, according to the Lord's prescribed. He, and he's, he's removing the idols and the altars that his father had put in the temple. He's, he's putting it back to the model that the Lord had commanded, that layout he gave to Moses. And then he's restarting the worship with sacrifices, singing, and psalms. Just as an aside, you, you can see that the Assyrians might not take this kindly. This was, in effect, a declaration of independence, sneak preak of the next, pre- preview of the next couple of weeks. They're going to come. They're going to be angry. They're going to bring an army. But for now, just see how brave Hezekiah was to lead the people back to the Lord, regardless of the consequences. Well, not only was this dangerous politically, it was also improbable. Israel is, is disorganized. It's spread out. It's already past the new year. Hezekiah is determined and he sends messengers north, south, and they decide to hold the Passover in the second month. Remember that passage that we read in Numbers. That was an option for people who were disqualified. It's not technically that original law is not technically what's happening here, but we'll speak about that a little bit later. And so the messengers go out throughout all the land. And how do the people respond? Let's look at the next section, verses 10 through 14. So the couriers went from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh as far as Zebulun, but they laughed at them to scorn and mocked them. However, some men of Asher, of Manasseh, and Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Judah. The hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of God. And the people, and many people came together in Jerusalem to keep the feast of unleavened bread in the second month, a very great assembly. They set to work and removed the altars that were in Jerusalem and all the altars for burning incense. They took away and threw in the brook Kidron. See a a mixed response here. Some people mock them, might be uh, disillusioned or afraid. And they might be seen as collaborators by the Assyrians and they don't want to be involved in this. Their hearts were hard. But some people, they mentioned different tribes from the north. They did come. 
They humbled their hearts. They made the long journey. They approached Jerusalem to worship the Lord. And you see, once they are here, the Lord gives this the unity of heart to throw themselves into cleansing Jerusalem, removing high gods, foreign gods from other places besides the temple. It's all going well, but it's not without its problems. Let's read on verse 15. And they slaughtered the Passover lamb on the 14th day of the second month. And the priests and the Levites were ashamed. So they consecrated themselves and brought offerings into the house of the Lord. Then they took their accustomed posts according to the law of Moses, the man of God. The priests threw the blood that they received from the hand of the Levites. For there were many in the assembly who had not consecrated themselves. Therefore, the Levites had to slaughter the Passover lambs for everyone who was not clean to consecrate it to the Lord. For a majority of the people, many of them from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun had not cleansed themselves, yet they ate the Passover otherwise than as prescribed. There's two problems here, a smaller one and a bigger one. The little one is that the priests and the Levites were not consecrated. It seems like they were not as zealous as the people. The people were so zealous that it outstripped their preparation. Maybe they weren't expecting it. When I was deployed my second time, over a decade ago, hard to say, um, but over a decade ago, we don't think the army actually believed that my battalion would stand up because they said, be ready at this time. We were ready at this time. And then we spent three months in stateside waiting for our slot to open up. And so we got there so fast, we were in this holding pattern. Well, the priests also find themselves not ready. And so they're able to consecrate themselves and take their stations according to the law of Moses. But there's a bigger problem. The priests are a small group in number. The, the people in themselves are not set apart. They're not consecrated ritually to be prepared for this Passover celebration. We don't know why. It mentions people from the north. Probably they've traveled very far and they don't have the means or the ability. Or maybe they were ignorant. But they're not fit to take the Passover. So we might ask today, well, what's the big deal? It's just a little consecration. Why does it matter? You know, our, our society has, has dressed down and we, we have removed a lot of ceremonies and formalities. And when you don't have that, you just might even be tempted to say, what? what's the big deal? Can't, can't God just forgive? Can't he just cover this over? Well, actually, no. In the Old Testament, God was very clear to show that his holiness, that the separateness in the laws that he prescribed, was, was, was paramount in importance. In Leviticus 7, verses 19 21, not going to turn there, but you can write them down and look them later. Unclean priests were not allowed to eat sacrificed meat that would have been available to them and their family. Numbers 9 10, it, we read this. Anyone who is unclean in the second month shall keep, first month shall keep it in the second. But if you do it improperly, you will be cut off from your people. God is serious. This, uh, uh, right after the Passover or, or in, in Leviticus, there's the story of Nahab and Abihu were just offering incense before the Lord, but not as he prescribed. Fire comes out and consumes them. They die. Once again, you see here that that big storyline of the Bible, how will a holy God live with an impure people? Reconsecration simply means to be set apart for a special purpose. And the reason that Israel needed to be uh, consecrated in the first place is because God was incredibly holy. And the whole point of the sacrificial system was to make you both clean ceremonially, but remind you that you you had to be holy before the God. You had to be cleansed. And it was a time 
lengthy and it, it was a lengthy process. And God couldn't just, according to the system, just accept them as they were. This was a major problem. The people had come to worship God and they were not acceptable. The, the Levites did what they could, even so going so far as to sacrifice for the people so that the people didn't come as an impure people sooner. But there was no getting around it. At the very end, what we read, verse 18, verse, beginning of verse 18, they, they ate the Passover not in the way it was written. Different than was commanded by Moses. They had to break some of God's ceremonial laws to keep the feast. And this casts a shadow over the whole event. Will the Lord approve? And at this point, once again, King Hezekiah shines. He intervenes. If you go back to verse 18, for Hezekiah had prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord pardon everyone who sets his heart to seek the Lord, the God the Lord, the God of his fathers, even though not according to the sanctuary's rule of cleanliness. And the Lord heard Hezekiah and heals his people. Now, his prayer is very important as, as he shows us how to approach God. First of all, he says, May the good Lord cover over everyone. Most translations translate this as pardon or forgive, but every other time these words are used, cover over, it has to do with the sense of atonement, of, of making satisfaction, buying back. Sometimes we use the word propitiation, right? divine satisfaction. Moses made atonement for the, the covered over for the golden calf, and then there's the day of atonement that, that occurs four times. This is very serious. It's not some little thing where God just sweeps it under the rug. Hezekiah knows this is dangerous. He knows that the Lord is perfectly holy and pure and no one can approach him outside of the way that he has set apart for him to come. And that's not happening here. And so he's asking the Lord to provide a way for his people, provide that purification, that satisfaction for their impurity out of his own grace. Well, how does he make his case? He, he does talk about the condition of the people. They've humbled themselves, Lord. They are seeking them, seeking you with their whole heart. They are following you to the best of their ability. But notice he doesn't stop there. He spends most of his time talking about the Lord's character. He calls him Yahweh God, which is the traditional name. He's identifying with the, the generations of the past. You are the God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel. You have promised to be our God and we are people. His basis in the prayer is not just people who are seeking him, but the character of God himself, who has promised that he wants people to come with him. And this is how we pray when, when we are helpless. We focus on God and who he is. He's honest about who they are, even though they have not been consecrated by purification. Even though we haven't come to you in the way exactly as you prescribed, we want to seek you, but in the end we are impure. Lord, will you hear us? And what does the Lord do? In a simple conclusion, an understated finale, it just says the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. He says he healed them. It seems to indicate that maybe even some people had gotten sick as a sign of God's displeasure, showing that they hadn't followed completely. And yet God responds to Hezekiah's intercession and he makes them whole. And so how do they respond? They respond in an Old Testament worship service. We'll read 21 through the end of the chapter. And the people of Israel who were present at Jerusalem kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with great gladness. And the Levites and the priests praised the Lord day by day, singing with all their might to the Lord. 
And Hezekiah spoke encouragingly to all the Levites who showed good skill in the service of the Lord. So they ate the food of the festival for seven days, sacrificing peace offerings and giving thanks to the Lord, the God of their fathers. Then the whole assembly agreed together to keep the feast for another seven days. So they kept it for another seven days with gladness. For Hezekiah, king of Judah, gave the assembly a thousand bulls and seven thousand sheep for offerings. And the princes gave the assembly a thousand bulls and ten thousand sheep. And the priests consecrated themselves in great numbers. The whole assembly of Judah and the priests and the Levites and the whole assembly that came out of Israel and the sojourners who came out of the land of Israel rejoiced. So there was great joy in Jerusalem. For since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites arose and blessed the people and their voice was heard and their prayer came to his holy habitation. God heard them. They rejoice before him and they say, let's this is great. So great. Let's do it again for seven days. Now, you have to take into account they only do this once a year. But maybe this is like coming to morning worship and saying, hey, this was awesome. Well, if only we could do this again in the evening. Right? We, we'd love to be with God and, and they're threatened with their impurity. And then they're, they, they, they sense the visible relief of forgiveness. And they're rejoicing before him as God has made a way for him to be their God and, and they their people. Just again, as a sneak preview, just say how important this is in the history of Israel. It says, never since the time of Solomon has there been a Passover like this. Once again, you see Hezekiah shining as an instrument from God, a model, example, really a type of Christ. Now, there are many differences between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But we serve the same God who makes the same promises. And so, what can you learn about worship by looking to a passage like this? In the Old Testament time, we'll say there's three applications for us today as we think about how we come and approach God all the time, but especially, I would say, in public worship. First of all, come recognizing that you are a flawed people. Come admitting freely that you are sinners. I know that there are a lot of people today. This is this is this is a controversial issue today in, in our society. There are a lot of people who have a, an allergy to the word sin. It just, you know, they, they, it's the idea of God is holy has fallen upon hard times. And, and this is a point where if we're going to proclaim the gospel, we're going to sound a little weird. But let's talk about what you know, you may have friends or maybe even maybe even you've temp- been tempted to think this way. Is you've been just hearing everyone, the voices around you that, you know, God's job, if he exists, is to make me happy and affirm who I am. Right. God, you're lucky that I showed up today. You, you, I'm doing you a favor by being here, by, by tuning in. Right? The idea of sin seems silly. It seems medieval. If God can't accept me as I am, then I'm not going to accept God either. He just, he just needs to chillax. He just, he just needs to chill. And many people have that view of sin. It's just, it's just not a category in their mind. It's, it's, it's offensive or, or, or even just, just beyond silly. And yet... We all know that something's wrong with this world. In fact, most people have no problem calling out Putin's invasion of Ukraine as evil. It's just, it's just clear aggression. It's an unprovoked war. You know it's wrong. Innocent people are dying. That's evil. You have to ask, where does evil come from? Well, it comes from desires for conquest, for greatness, for power, selfish ambitions, covetousness. 
Now, you and I may not be of Vladimir Putin or may not go as far. Maybe we're honest because we don't have the power to even try that. But if you are truthful, you have some of those same thoughts, don't you? Most people are many people who might be allergic to the word sin actually have a very poor view of themselves, a lot of self-loathing and are quick to point out flaws in people around them. It's, It's heartbreaking today to see the pain that people are in. You look at the increase of mental health challenges, um, the hurt that people cause each other in social media. You look at the the despair, the lack of purpose, especially in our young people today, increased drug use and suicide. You say, why is that? What's wrong with us? Well, I I can give you what the the Bible's answer is. What scripture says is because it's, it's, it's understandable that that's pain in the relationships that you feel with others or even within yourself because it shows that you're out of line with the God who created you, whether you believe in him or not. He's there. And it's not slavery, it's freedom to admit that you are not right with him and that you need help. And this story here, like the Bible, is refreshingly honest about these people. I love how, how just straightforward it is. The sons of Israel, they are not flat characters. They are not good Christians. Right, that just come to church nicely dressed. and you know, Some of them ridicule and mock God's summons to worship. The priests and Levites are embarrassed. They're lacking in zeal. Their elders and deacons fall down the job. Verses 18 and 19 make it obvious that Israel violates the law. They can't keep it as according to the law of Moses. And all of this, it doesn't try to hide it. No. Israel is a flawed people. They're unworthy on their own to stand before this holy God. They need him to act. And it reminds you and me that we are in a similar place. We are flawed people needing God's grace every day. And it's not that God, if he exists, is lucky that we worship him. No. It's that we are incredibly fortunate that a perfect and holy God has extended us mercy so that we have the privilege of worshiping him with his people today. And what makes worship so special is not that everything lights up, the room lights up when you come in, although you are precious and valued in God's eyes. What makes worship so incredible is that God has made a way for rebels like us to come in and freely rejoice before him and give him glory for what he's done. We are a flawed people. And yet God accepts us. So we can't allow worship to become trivial or wrote, but we come flawed, experiencing God's grace. The second thing is come as a striving people. God loves you unconditionally in Christ, but praise God he doesn't leave you there. You come as a flawed people, you go open with your sins, but you don't flaunt them. You don't use it as an excuse for weakness or laziness. You know, I'm a sinner, so I can, and God's, God's forgiven me, so, you know, I can do what I please and he'll take care of it. You could even use this passage as a justification. Hey, Hezekiah cut some corners, right? He didn't keep all the, all the, the, the laws. That was all good. Why can't I? God really just cares about the heart after all. What, what about the outside? You know, he, he wants me to be sincere. He wants me to be authentic. You might have heard those words before. You know, sometimes people talk about being authentic. What they really mean is doing what they want to do. Kids, you can ask your parents what it means to be truly authentic at dinner. Um, 
But, you know, I spend time with God, myself and others, only when I feel like it, because otherwise that wouldn't be authentic. I'm an angry person, but it's just who I am. If I changed that, it wouldn't be authentic. You hear this one a lot. I can express myself sexually however I want, because God wouldn't want me to repress my feelings or desires. That wouldn't be authentic. None of these expressed this way are good things. They're actually signs that we are flawed and need God's grace. It is one thing to be honest and open about your sins. It's another to celebrate them. We can never do that. Following Jesus means that we trust in him by faith and then do battle with the sins in our lives. That's a determined effort. It doesn't mean coasting. It it means, for instance, today in in our sex-crazed world, that you view your body and sexuality as a temple, holy temple set apart to the Lord. By the way, that's not just for people who have same-sex attractions. That is for all of us. Every single one of us, wherever we are. That means seeking the Lord. And and when you find yourself not wanting to come to worship or spending time in Scripture, you need to act in faith and do it anyway because you know that's when you need it all the more. You don't use authenticity as an excuse to sit passively on the sidelines and not obey Jesus. I'll obey him when I feel like it. For some reason, you start to feel like it less and less. But that's a mistake that separates our actions from our hearts. Kids, it would be a little bit like saying, I don't really have to obey my parents unless I feel like it, because then it wouldn't be authentic obedience. It wouldn't be honest obedience. Well, of course, you really demonstrate you love your parents by doing what they say. And sometimes if they know you're doing something that you don't particularly like, they actually sense your love even more. Well, in this passage, you see a model Of true sincerity. Old Testament authenticity. Even though Hezekiah and and Israel, they're flawed people, they don't just say, oh, whatever, I can't do it, I'm not going to try. No, they they strive to keep God's law. Before the synaptus, you see all the reforms, they're following God's law to the letter. In this story, the priests took their place as they were commanded, after they were consecrated. They, They even tried to make things closer to the law, the Levites sacrificing in place for the people. You could tell that they were distressed by the fact that they couldn't keep the law. Why did they go through all this when they knew at the end the people still were going to violate it? Because they had such a high opinion of God's law. Loving the Lord is not taking shortcuts or disciplines in the Christian life and putting them aside because you know you're not going to be perfect. It's seeking His will with your heart while at the same time knowing that you're going to need His grace. I'll say today, Christian, a follower of Jesus, are you disciplined? Now, this is not how you base your salvation or your acceptance. That comes from Jesus. But are you following him in a disciplined way? Are you using your spiritual gifts and developing your talents in a way to serve him? There's sometimes when your love goes cold. It's the same way in a romantic relationship where you stop doing the things that, that, that kindle the fire of your relationship. And then all of a sudden, you see someone else in a romantic relationship. Maybe you go to a restaurant and you see a couple and they're actually holding hands. They look like they're enjoying themselves. Or as a follower of Christ, you hear a brother or sister pray, and you can just hear them pouring out their heart, and you think, oh, I've lost that. I've I've lost that fervor. I've lost that love. Maybe because you've stopped being disciplined in your faith. And you can use that example of someone else to encourage you in the Lord. That's what these brothers and sisters in the Old Testament are to us. We are to be a striving people. 
never to cut corners, but to follow the Lord. And finally, we do that as a covered people. You are, I am, flawed people, deeply loved. We are to strive, but it is only because we are covered in the blood of Jesus. And this salvation, this good news is God's greatest gift. The Old Testament, as I say, continues to ask the question, how can a sinful people draw near to a holy God? And you see the tension here because there's this ritual atonement that that stands for symbols of how God will save his people. And yet the people's limitation gets in the way of coming to God if they keep that system. They have to break it at some point. And to do that, they have to be covered in blood. And Leviticus says that there must be blood for atonement. And yet here Hezekiah asks for atonement without sacrifice. How is that possible? It's a mystery. But it's a mystery that's fulfilled in the New Testament that's wonderful and marvelous. Some commentators, as they're looking at this, say, well, sacrifices, they're just a teaching tool. The innocent blood must be shed for the guilty. But it's more than that. It's, it's a promise of what's to come, of the final sacrifice where God would come and shed his own blood. It says in Hebrews 9, when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. This is why God was able to forgive without sacrifice on this special occasion. Because of that final sacrifice. It shows that the Old Testament ceremonial, although it was important, it was temporary. It was waiting for its complete fulfillment in Jesus. And now looking back, you can see too that you have been made worthy, just like Israel, by the blood of Jesus. And it's when you can rest in that covering of, of Jesus... That like Israel, you can rejoice before the Lord. I love them celebrating him with an unbridled affection, feasting, eating good, drinking well for two weeks, delighting in God's presence. And so you come today to worship in Christ. If you put your faith in Christ, completely forgiven, completely accepted, completely covered by the blood of Jesus. We're about to take the Lord's Supper. And, and this table, which symbolizes, which feeds us um, the gospel of Jesus, it's the great equalizer. Each of us who are fed, remember, we're, we're equally accepted, we're equally loved, we're equally justified. We stand in awe of this God who gave himself for us to make us new so that we can be in his presence. Let us pray. Lord, each week we come here. And we hear of your good news as it's preached in your word, as the order of worship proclaims it, that you, an incredible, holy, awesome God, delight to be in the presence of people who would have no hope without your mercy. And so we stand in your presence and, and we gaze and we rejoice at you. We praise you for who you are. Fill us now with incredible joy as we receive your supper. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.